How is everybody? Good. Glad you're here. It's uh, You get bonus points on a wet, cold day. Uh, I asked God about it, and he said it's true. I uh, appreciate Josiah taking up for me last week on such short notice, and I appreciate all the prayers. <clears throat> I am... I look good, I feel good, so uh, glad to be here. All right, so today we're going to talk about... Um, we're in this series about a Christmas with less stress. And we're talking about how to avoid uh, a post-Christmas letdown. I know Christmas hasn't happened yet, but there's an old expression, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that's really a pretty good way to live life. So if you're going to take a trip, you check the oil and you make sure you know uh, you, you have enough air in your tires. Or uh, it's good to get a, a annual physical. You want to make sure you're, you're doing okay. Or before you buy something expensive, you want to check your bank account, make sure you can afford it, that kind of thing. So an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So we're going to talk about Christmas is eight days away. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to have one service. I'll talk about that just a little bit. But eight days away, it's kind of Christmas is almost here. And then there'll be the day after Christmas. And that, <laughs> then what do you do? Because there's such a build-up to Christmas, and I'm glad we get to build up to it, and it's a great, important day, and the history of the world, and all that. But just to be honest with you, holidays don't always turn out the way you'd like. They just don't. I remember when my daughter Amaris was about four, my dad got her as a Christmas present this obnoxious keyboard thing that made horrible noises. And a four-year-old with a keyboard is a is a, a recipe for driving a person crazy. And so I said to my dad, Dad, do you realize that's going to drive me crazy? And he kind of smiled at me. He goes, yeah, I realize it. Uh, so holidays don't always turn out the way you hope they would. Uh, one guy recounted a special Christmas gift. Uh, for Christmas, his wife purchased him a week's training session at a private health club. And so I want to read for you his account. Day one, I called and made an appointment with someone named Tanya, a 26-year-old aerobics instructor and athletic clothing model. My wife seemed very pleased how enthusiastic I was to get started. They suggested I keep this exercise chart, uh, exercise diary to chart my progress this week. I started this morning at 6 a.m. It was tough to get up, but worth it when I arrived at the health club and Tanya was waiting for me. She's something of a goddess with long blonde hair and dazzling white smile. She showed me the machines and took my pulse after five minutes on the treadmill. She seemed alarmed that it was so high. I think just standing next to her added 10 points. Tanya was very encouraging as I did my sit-ups, though my gut was already aching a little from holding it in the whole time I was talking to her. This is going to be great. Day two. Took a whole pot of coffee to get out the door, but I made it. Tanya made me lie down on my back and push this heavy iron bar into the air. Then she puts weights on the end of it. Legs were a little wobbly on the treadmill, but I made it the full mile. Her smile made it worth it all. Muscles feel great. Day three. The only way I can brush my teeth is by laying the toothbrush on the counter and moving my mouth back and forth over it. Driving was okay as long as I didn't try to steer. Tanya was a little impatient with me today and said my screaming was bothering the other club members. Day four. Tanya was waiting for me with her vampire teeth and full snarl. I can't help it if I'm a half hour late. It took me that long to tie my shoes. I hid in the men's locker room until she sent Lars in looking for me. Day five. 
I hate Tanya. More than any human has ever hated another human in the history of the world. If there were any part of my body that was not in this extreme pain, I would hit her with it. She thought today would be a good day to work on my triceps. Well, I've got news for you, Tanya. I don't have triceps. And if you don't want dents in your floor, don't hand me those barbells. Day six. Got Tanya's answering machine on my, I got Tanya's message on my answering machine wondering where I am. I lack the strength to even use the TV remote and have watched 11 straight hours of the Weather Channel. Day seven. Well, that's the week. Thank God it's over. Maybe next time my wife will get me something a little more fun like a root canal or a kidney stone. So, holidays don't always turn out the way we think they should. And something else, holidays magnify emotions. So today we're going to kind of go off script a little bit. We're not going to look particularly at a a Christmas uh, text, but we are going to learn some things about what to do when the blues hit you. Um, Holidays are bad about this because... Uh, More people get engaged during the holidays and more families fight. Some people are in uh, uh, ecstasy and some people are in agony. And what's really interesting is if you're depressed in the holidays, you're not alone. Let me give you some statistics. There's a website called Mental Health America, and they report that about 10% of Americans suffer from depression at any moment, any given moment. That means one in 10 people in this room are likely to be something somewhat depressed. Statistically, it's proven that the more money you have, the more depressed you are, which is a bit depressing in and of itself. Then, I read a a survey just this week, according to the uh, uh, 2023 uh, study by Gallup and Walton Family Foundation. Gen Zers, our kids are young people aged 18 to 26, 59% of Gen Zers describe themselves as either struggling or suffering in their mental outlook on life. 59%. Women are twice as likely to be depressed as men. So basically, if you're here and you're a poor old dude, you might be okay. But everybody else is probably in a little bit of a struggle. And so we're going to talk about it today. I mean, it's important. and, And depression strikes lots of people. Uh... Great people, you know, not great people. I mean, people like uh, in, in history, like Churchill and Tolstoy and Abraham Lincoln. And even in Scripture, you have people like Job and Moses and Jeremiah. And the guy we're going to look at today is a dude called Elijah. We're going to be in First Kings 18 and 19, by the way. So we shop for gifts. And Josiah, I, I listened to his message last week, and he said he likes to shop for gifts we have a word for that in Kentucky. We call that a weirdo. Uh, so he likes to shop. I, I'm, with, I'm, I'm with Sarah Margaret. The gift cards are great. But sometimes you shop and you try to get the perfect gift and it's wrapped perfectly under the tree. And within, within five minutes of unwrapping the presents, now that joy kind of seems gone. And then in about a week or two, depending on who you are, you're going to take the tree down and you're going to take the ornaments down. And we have, we decorated outside, so I'll be taking those lights down and I'll be getting on the roof and pulling that off. That's not that much fun. It wasn't that much fun putting it up. It's less fun taking it down. And to top all that, then there's a credit card bill coming if you charge things. And it's tough. Christmas can be a really tough time on people. Now, let me give you two disclaimers. For some people, depression is a body chemistry issue. It's clinical. It's chronic. You might need more than what you're going to get today. 
I think looking at Scripture is always a good idea, but it might not be enough. So just understand, uh, counseling, there used to be sort of this stigma around counseling. It's not there anymore. It should have never been there. And sometimes people need more than you're going to get today. And we get that. And something else, a disclaimer number two, some people are just sort of happy-go-lucky. The glass is always half full, and you might not even feel any of this. Uh, when I lived in Kentucky when I was a, a youth, uh, probably 16, 17, 18 years old, there's a lake near where I live, Harrington Lake. And a bunch of us guys, we found a place to jump off the cliff and, and jump into the lake, and we enjoyed that. And, and I invited my friend Mark. I said, Mark, dude, we're, we're, we're going swimming down at, lake, uh, down at Harrington Lake. You want to come with us? And Mark was not a, a glass-half-full guy, and he said, well, you know they dump raw sewage uh, in there 40 feet down. And my buddy Bobby said, we don't go that deep. Uh, so uh, um, there are people like that. You know, it's like nothing really ever bothers them. But if, if Elvis's Blue Christmas is your favorite song this time of year, maybe this message is for you. So let me set it up for you. Again, we're going to be in 1 Kings 18 and 19 a little bit. Elijah is sort of the, the key character in the story. Now, Elijah is a prophet of God. He's been commissioned by God to do some very difficult things. In the ancient world, kind of as in today, uh, kings and queens and dictators and people in power are often ruthless and wicked. We saw Herod a couple of weeks ago, a wicked, ruthless man. And so you have Elijah... And God commissions Elijah to go to Ahab, who's the king of Israel. And he has a wife named Jezebel. And she's wicked, by the way. If anybody ever calls you a Jezebel, it's not a compliment. That's not, not a good thing. And so uh, Ahab and Jezebel are ruling the kingdom. They, they're wicked. They start to worship not the true God. And you'll see in, in the Old Testament there are gods like the Baals, B-A-A-L, and Molech, and Asherah. And you see these names, and they all basically function the same way. They're all fertility gods. And if you live in an agrarian society where you need the earth to produce, and if a god promises to cause favor in your crops, then you pray to that particular god. So... Uh, Baal and Asherah and Molech, they took sacrifices with the promise that the crops would be good. Fertility. They were fertility gods. The problem with the fertility gods is a lot of the worship, and I'll put that in quotation marks, a lot of the worship of the fertility gods had to deal with illicit sexual behavior. Uh, you were trying to be fertile, and so you wanted the land to be fertile. And, and it, it, was, it was kind of perverse, honestly, just kind of over and over, just perverse. And God had had enough of that in the nation of Israel, and so God sent His prophet Elijah to King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. With the message, there is going to be a drought, and the drought is going to last for as long as... Basically, God says, the drought is going to last as long as I say it's going to last. Now, that wasn't well received by Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and so eventually they um, kind of, uh, they don't invite him to any Christmas parties, and he's in a lot of trouble. And Elijah shows up, and 
After about three years of famine, Elijah shows up and he, he kind of issues a, a challenge. Now, this summer, we, we went a few weeks, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks without rain. You can imagine what it's like. It's a pretty arid place anyway, with a drought in an arid place for over three years. And for three years, Ahab doesn't hear from Elijah, no communication. And Elijah shows up one day, and he issues a challenge. And this is the challenge. Elijah says to King Ahab, Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. These are the fertility um, prophets. they're, They're wicked men too. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver before two options? I don't exactly know what level of courage it takes to challenge 850 men to a duel, but I do know I don't possess it. 850 to 1. And then he stands before the people and he says, Why are you wavering between two options? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. And and I began to wonder, why would they say nothing? Maybe it's because they're scared. I mean, if the king and Jezebel, well, they have some power. And if they say, this is the way we're going to go, and if you don't want to go this way, well, then you're in trouble, then perhaps they just kept their mouths shut because they thought it would be the most prudent thing to do. And there's this scene on top of Mount Carmel. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and there's Elijah. 850 to 1. And that is not really good odds. And the challenge was this. You take a bull and you, uh, you butcher it any way you want to and you lay it on an altar, you build the altar, you, you set the wood, you stack the wood any way you want to. And Elijah says, you call on your gods to consume the fire. You can't light it, but you call on your gods and your gods, if they're really God, will be able to consume the sacrifice, the bull and the wood, and he'll be able to light the fire and the sacrifice. And that can prove that Baal and Asherah, that they are really God. And so these guys take up the challenge, and they arrange the wood, and they arrange the meat on the wood, and they begin to pray. And they cut themselves, and they throw dust in the air. And it is all to no avail. And about noontime, Elijah begins to talk smack. I love this part of the story. Elijah begins mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or he is on the potty. That's awesome. I mean, it's like, it's like you're God. He can't be God like when he's in the bathroom. Uh, you know, he's texting. Uh, you know, what is he doing? Or maybe he is away on a trip or he is asleep and needs to be awakened. And he begins to mock. And mocking does this a lot of times to people. They began to pray harder and louder and cut themselves more and scream more loudly. And again, to no avail. And then Elijah takes his turn, and he 
arranges the wood and he arranges the rocks around the wood and he arranges the bull and he puts it on the fire on the wood and and there's no fire yet and then just to make it more difficult i don't know a lot about fire making but i do know this you don't want water involved and elijah says bring water and they dump it on the on the the offering there they dump it on the bull and the wood and they dig a trench and there's so much water it's in the trench which is really interesting because they're in a drought Somehow they find water for this particular event. And then Elijah simply prays, God, if you are God, consume this offering. And this is what happens. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And this is an amazing victory. But it's not even over yet. Because the Lord sort of says to Elijah, Hey, I'm about to to end the drought. So why don't you go look on the horizon and see if you see any clouds? And he does, and he begins to pray, and he looks, and there's nothing, and they pray, and they look, and and eventually there's a cloud coming. And so Elijah says to Ahab, dude, you better get back to town before the rain comes. The sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. That's where the capital was. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. And I've kind of always wondered, did he run on the road? Like, is he running, and there's the, there's the chariot, and he's running with the chariot, which is, would be phenomenal. Or did he go cross-country, off-track, you know, who knows. But he beats Ahab back to the capital. And as soon as Ahab gets home, he goes and finds his wicked wife Jezebel and he tells her everything that has happened. And she is big mad. And she puts a contract out on Elijah's head. And he is a marked man. And Elijah flees for his life. He was afraid, ran for his life, and he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. And then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. This is a broom tree, by the way. And I can picture, can't you, Elijah in that little bit of shade, kind of in the fetal position, and he is praying, God, I am done with all of this. Now, he's a man of God. He's a man of God who has done amazing things. He's a man of God who's done amazing things just now. I mean, it's just happened. And here he finds himself in a state of depression to the point of praying, Lord, take my life. I am done. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever gotten to the Lord, take my life. I'm done stage, but Elijah has. And I want us to kind of walk through the process of what happened to Elijah to get him to this point and what he could have done to prevent it and what he did sort of by default to get back into a better place mentally. I mean, if CNN had the headline that day, it would be King of the Hill is now down in the dumps. He went from the high to the low, and we're going to see that that sometimes happens. So, 
How to avoid a post-holiday letdown? Well, first you have to anticipate there are times, potential times, when depression is more likely to hit. It's, it's not always the same. Sometimes the conditions are just right for something to happen negative. And the conditions were just right for Elijah. One, he had physical fatigue. He had just run 18 miles. I'm not a runner. I know that shocks you because I have a runner's physique. Uh, but I'm not a runner, but I do like, have, I've watched it. You know, it's almost the same. I've watched people run. And on television, there are like marathons. There's the big ones like uh, Swamp Rabbit and in uh, Boston and New York. And, and so I watch those things. What I understand about running, or I've read a couple of places, is that marathoners will tell you at about the 18-mile mark, you, they, they call it hitting the wall. It's like, and, and some of them will describe it, the wall hits you. You're at 18 miles, you're going to go 26, you know, but at 18 miles, you sort of hit the wall. And what's really interesting, from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, it's about 18 miles. El- Elijah had this, this uh, spurt of energy, and he runs, but he hits this wall, and often a little fatigue will go a long way. How many of us know, don't you know, like raise your hand and really don't point? Uh, how many of us have ever been so tired and we say something, and as soon as the words come out of our mouths, we go, I just don't know why I said that. Why did I do that? I don't even mean that. Well, it's because we do things we don't want to do when we're tired. Another thing is the after the high low. You see it in sports all the time. There'll be an underdog team and they'll, they'll uh, have this great victory. You see it in basketball a lot. This underdog team has this great victory over a higher ranked team. And then the very next game, they play somebody of equal stature and they lay an egg and they just get drilled. There's this after the high low. It just happens. It's predictable. Women experience it in, uh, sometimes in childbirth. It's called postpartum depression. Dr. Archibald Hart calls it a post-adrenaline letdown. I experience it every Sunday. Every Sunday. I love to preach. I love being up here. I love to prepare. I love to deliver. I love that you're here. Thank you so much. But just to be honest with you, when the doors close and I go to my car, I drive home, there's about a 50-50 chance... I'm going to even eat lunch before I take a nap. Sometimes I just don't, I just don't want to even be around people. My wife has figured this out. Uh, Elise, they're so gracious. They, they just give me grace and they let me. They just let me be by myself. I, I just that's just it. Some pastors take their uh, Mondays as their day off. I don't want to feel that bad on my day off. I mean, that, that's kind of what some of them do. It's like, well, they're dumb. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I don't want to do that. I, I take Friday off. By then, I'm okay again. Here's the deal. We've all experienced it probably in one way or the other. And then think about this. He was under constant pressure. God had commissioned him to make this... Uh, this um, proclamation to Ahab, hey, there's a a drought coming, and then he's 850 to 1, and he wins, and then he runs, and now there's a contract out on his head, and there's pressure, and you experience pressure. I mean, we're about to a new year, and I don't know if you've been to begin to think about this, or think about this, think about this, 
but you're going to probably make some resolutions, whether you write them down or not, and you're saying them to yourself, and, and I'm going to you know, get more healthy, or I'm going to eat better, or I'm going to you know, go to church more often, or I'm going to compliment the pastor much, much, much more, you know, good stuff like that. And, and you have these resolutions that, that you have in your mind. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes we resolve to do something, but, but isn't it kind of the case something gets in the way? You want to know the reason why we don't uh, resolve for, to eat better before Christmas? Because of all those cookies. Uh, I went to my desk. It's like, oh my goodness. I've got, I've got goodies. And thank you, for, by the way, for all those. Um, but next week I'll be 20 pounds heavier. I mean, it's just kind of... But we, we, com- we commit to doing something and then we can't hold, we can't hold fast to it. Maybe you say, okay, uh, next year I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to do everything I can to get out of debt. I'm going to really, really try to get out of debt. And then you have an unexplained or an unexpected illness or part of your car breaks down. And you'd resolved, but there's an outside force that makes it difficult. Or you commit to you know, a cleaner lifestyle or whatever, whatever it might be. And you're doing pretty good, but all of a sudden you have a setback. And when you're resolved and when you're going strong and then there's a little setback, even a little setback can be overwhelming. Shadows always look longer when the sun's going down. And here you have Elijah and he had done some amazing things and all of a sudden... Jezebel looks like a giant. God had just delivered him through all these things. And yet now he's scared out of his mind. He's praying for God to take his life. Another thing to watch for is loneliness. Loneliness around the holidays. Well, anytime, but honestly, around the holidays, it's crippling. We have discovered that one of, the, one of the most effective punishments for people in prison is solitary confinement, to not be with people. It is a punishment. Loneliness is debilitating. Ask anyone who, ask a soldier who's away uh, during the holidays. Ask a divorcee who's experiencing their first Christmas uh, apart from their former spouse. Ask someone who's lost a spouse what it's like the first Christmas. Ask a single uh, career-minded adult who all of a sudden finds himself alone at Christmas. And there's a deeper loneliness even than those things. Those are bad. Sometimes we have a fundamental disconnect to God. There's an alienation of the soul. We know He's there. We kind of grew up in church but we don't feel His Spirit. This is where we find Elijah. He had just seen God do amazing things. And within moments, he is under a broom tree praying to die. There are potential problems out there. Fatigue, after the high-low, constant pressure, loneliness. Now, How do we get past this? Well, it's really important to keep a proper perspective on the past. God had done some amazing things. If you read the story in 1 Kings 18 and 19, 
Elijah had said to Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, hey, there's going to be a drought. And yet God continued to provide for Elijah even during the drought. There's this crazy story about ravens bringing him food. There's a story about Elijah coming up on a widow. She's got a son. They have just a little bit of food. She's about to make their last meal together, and then they're going to die because they have no more food in the house. And Elijah says, make me a little bit first, and then great things will happen. And she has such great faith that she, because he's a prophet of God, and he asks, (coughs) she makes him a little cake of, of corn, I think, and gives it to him. And then uh, from then on, her pantry is never without food. It's a miracle. And on Mount Carmel, God had done great things, and he had defeated 850 prophets, and he had outrun the chariots. And even under the broom tree, all at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there uh, by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. And there's a principle to this. God is all around us all the time. He's there. I've been a follower of Jesus for more than 50 years, and I've experienced some things in my life, and I've seen God's fingerprint in all of it. When I was in the fifth grade, so that would put me, let's see, about 17. Uh, when I was in the fifth grade, not, well, I was 16. Um, when I was in the fifth grade, I was crossing the street in front of my house, and I got hit by a utility truck. It hit me so hard that it knocked my shoe off. Uh, so it wasn't like a bump. It was a pretty big hit. I, I, I know that I was, I was knocked out. I was knocked unconscious. So I'm in the middle of the road, knocked unconscious. They take me to the hospital. I don't remember a lot of that. They thought I had brain damage, which explains some things, uh, if you think about it. And I see God's hand in that. He, he saved me. One time I was at Lake Cumberland or Cumberland River, and Cumberland Falls is a great thing, and I was about 17 years old. And we were hiking one time, and um, as boys tend to do, we were hiking, and I was up on this big rock, and this rock, uh, one side of it went into the water. And so I was climbing on top of it, and I kind of got over the edge a little bit. And I was about to come back over, and my friend Mark, the same Mark that didn't want to go swimming, Mark said, hey, man, you can't go down that way. It's like, well, game on. Uh, you know, uh, the one thing you ever want to tell, uh, you get the youth to do something is tell them they can't do it. And so I'm on the other side and I'm shimmying down. I'm Spider-Manning down. I'm Spider-Manning down that rock. I am, in fact, not Spider-Man. And uh, I got down about halfway and it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to get back up. At, at some point, there's a point in, in, in these situations where you go, okay, well, I can stay here forever. Or I could just let go and see what happens. I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, the rock is right next to the river. How deep can it be? I mean, it's right next to the river. Now, it's February. It is cold as it can be. I let go. I begin to slide. The slide was fun. Let's just be honest with you. I hit the water to my knees, to my waist, to my face. I never hit bottom. 
I went so far down. I'm like, well, I was hoping to go down far enough to push myself back up. Well, that didn't happen. If you've ever been hot and then jumped into something really, really cold, this is that. This was what happened. I mean, it was like the polar plunge before that was even a thing. And I remember coming out of the water. I had to get my knees up to my chest just to breathe. Okay, well, didn't die. God was in that. I've been in several car accidents. When I was 40, I had a heart attack. None of those things were quite pleasant, but I see the hand of God in all of them. See, it's easy to see the problems. You have to look for the provision behind the problem. There are problems and they're obvious. It's almost like a neon sign. Problem, problem, problem. But there's a provision behind the problem so often. And we see God's hand in the provision. And Here's Elijah, and all he knows, all he's thinking about is, well, Jezebel, she's after me. That's how they talked back then. Uh, Jezebel's after me. And he's whining. He's a big whiner. I, I like people like Elijah in Scripture because when I whine, it makes me feel a little better about myself. Okay, well, those guys whined too. And yet the Scriptures say this, always give thanks to God the Father for everything. There's a purpose in everything, and gratitude will affect your attitude. So first you, you sort of anticipate, okay, I'm tired, I'm lonely, I might have some uh, after the high low, there's some things going on. I probably need to realize this is a time where I might, I'm susceptible, I'm more susceptible to depression. And then, okay, even if bad things are happening, God has always proven himself to be strong. And then I want to be proactive in the present. And by default, Elijah did some things. Well, he rested. And it's really important to physically rest when we're depressed. In our culture, I want you to think about it. We have our, I don't have my phone with me because I leave it in the, in, in the office because I don't want it to buzz. But we have communication basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All the time, we're checking our email, we're checking our texts. We go to bed texting or looking or thinking. And it's almost like we don't have an off switch. I heard somebody describe it like this. It's like holding a wolf by the ears. We'd like to let go, but we don't know what would happen if we do. And we're constantly under pressure. And physical renewal is extremely important. The way to win a long race is pace. So, by default, Elijah rested. And then he connected. It's really interesting. During this depression time, Elijah starts to whine. Nobody's out there. I'm the only one. God, I'm the only one. I'm just the only one. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And he is just whining away. And then God says, whoa, I have 7,000 people left in Israel who have never bowed before Baal, whose, whose mouths have never kissed the idol. Dude. It's right in the Hebrew. He says, dude. Or as the kids say, bruh. Bruh. Whatever the heck that means. Uh, it's like you're, be, you're, you're being a whiner. Here's what I love about freedom. I have checked, and we have no perfect people. 
I'm close, not quite. Uh, no perfect people. So when you come to our church, we're all sort of trying to help each other, trying to help each other get closer to Christ, find freedom in Christ, uh, walk with the Lord, do things that build the kingdom. I, I mean, there's something to be said for camaraderie. And Elijah felt alone. And then God puts a, a young man named Elisha in his life, Elijah and Elisha, and they become great friends. And one of the best things you can do when you're depressed is just get around some godly people. Then there's something else. <clears throat> get back in the game. When you're depressed, it's easy to just sort of become self-absorbed. So one of the best things you can do, one of the best remedies, is to find someone else to help. Because as bad as you think you have it, somebody else has it worse. And self-absorbed people are never happy people. So you find somebody that you can help. Now, the problem with when you're in a kind of a funk is you don't feel like you have much to offer. Here's the truth about God. You can easily be too big for God to use. You'll never be too small for God to use. You can be so full of yourself that God maybe can't use you, but you're never going to be too small for God because He uses anybody He wants. One more thing. Resist pessimism. It's, it's easy to be pessimistic about life. I read a cute story. Uh, there's a preacher and an author named Calvin Miller. He, he's great. And he talks about, he's got a daughter named Melanie. And when Melanie was uh, young, a teenager, they had a rule in the house, you can't date until you're 16. And Melanie was 15 and nine months, and a boy asked her to the Christmas dance. And they held fast. No, you can't go to the dance until you're 16. And this is what <laughs> Melody said to her dad. Dad, I hope the Lord comes back in the next three months. So you'll have to live with yourself all through eternity knowing I never had a date. <laughs> now, that, that is a, kind of a pessimistic way to look. It, it's, it's possible to be pessimistic, but you don't have to be. One more thing, and we'll end with this. Remember, God understands. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is this one. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is here to help us. For example, when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit prays for us in ways that we cannot, uh, that cannot be put into words. And we think, man, Jesus had it all together, and He did have it all together. But one time He said to His friends, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. There are times in our lives where we don't know what to pray. We just cry. We're broken. And I read this week, it was a beautiful thought. This author said, When we can't pray, all we can offer God is our tears. The Holy Spirit comes and takes our tears wipes them off of our face, and He translates them into the perfect prayer. Let's end with a couple of Christmas verses. While they, Mary and Joseph, were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
The reality of Christmas is that it took place in a dirty, smelly stable. And it should remind us that Jesus didn't have it easy either. And so we prepare for the holidays and we should enjoy the holidays, but we've got to also understand after the holidays are the other days. See, Jesus is the reason for the season. He's the reason after the season too. He's the reason we get up in the morning and He's the reason we make it another day and He's the reason we have purpose in life and He's the one who gives us people in our lives to love and to help and to serve. Jesus is the reason for this season. He's going to be the reason for next season too. He's just the reason. Let's pray. Father, help us to be aware that You are there. You are at work. That Your hand is upon us. We're thankful for all the good gifts You give to us. Thank You for Christmas. Help us to enjoy, just enjoy the life out of it. But then... Be with us the day after Christmas and the year after Christmas. And help us to be reminded that you're the reason for that season too. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.